Today's sermon for the third Sunday of Lent is called The Neutral Mind, and it's the third in what is turning out to be a sermon series on the mind. Last Sunday I preached on the Gentile mind, and the Sunday before that I pre- preached on the depraved mind. Today's reading for the third Sunday of Lent, and the, again from the traditional lectionary, is Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. So my subject today is neutrality. And the point I want to make is that there is no such thing as neutrality. There's no such thing as neutrality in the political world or in the religious world. There's not even any such thing as neutrality in the demonic world. We see that again and again. The, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. They're not indifferent. They know who he is. They're afraid of him. They're opposed to him. But they're not neutral. There's not even anything such thing as neutrality in the world of science. You know, the so-called uh, follow the science. That's the science I'm talking about. It's not neutral, and I'm try to show you why I think that later. Jesus' words in today's gospel, the gospel for the third Sunday of Lent, make make it clear that Jesus does not believe in neutrality. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. He who is not with me is against me. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus restates this positively after telling his disciples not to stop a non-disciple from casting out demons in Jesus' name. Do not forbid him, for he, is, for he that is not against you is for you. So he's clear. Jesus is clear. Man is either on his side or not. But as Christians, we are beset on all sides by appeals to neutrality. In fact, probably we even think that it's good for us to be neutral, to be unassuming, to be uh, unbiased, to be non-judgmental. I mean, Scripture does say, judge not lest ye be judged. I think after, by the end of this sermon, though, you'll see that when Jesus says those words, that's not a call for neutrality either. There's just no way Jesus is calling for neutrality. But if you find yourself in a situation at work or at home, among your friends, socially, where you are required, even maybe not explicitly, no one ever comes out and says this, right? But you know you can't state your Christian beliefs up front. You're in a situation where you're being asked to be neutral. Uh, And what I think I want to show you, or what I hope to show you by the end of today's sermon, is that you really can't be neutral. And that those situations are engineered by... Well, crowds that are leavened with hypocrisy, the the leaven of the Pharisees, as we'll see that Jesus calls them. If you find yourself in situations like that, where you're asked to be neutral, understand that the other side is not neutral. They're creating circumstances where you cannot be a Christian. And they are trying to appeal to your sense of virtue, uh, your better angels, by telling you that neutral, being neutral is is the way to be the right way to be a Christian. Uh, but they've already, they've already staged the situation, framed the situation where neutrality only favors them. Your supposed neutrality, I should say, only favors them. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. So why should Christians be asked to embrace neutrality when from our own lips such a thing cannot be? Well, it has to do with what's going on in the today's gospel, which I suppose I should read for you now. This is an encounter of Jesus with the crowds. Jesus was casting out a demon that was dumb, and when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom that is divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. 
And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For I, for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. I think he means the demons here. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him, and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. As he said this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that you sucked. But he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this reading from Luke's Gospel is an appeal for Jesus, appeal by Jesus for consistency in the face of the world's sinful inconsistency. And Jesus is calling out the inconsistency here of a, of a hostile crowd of onlookers. He's just cast out a demon from a dumb man, and that dumb man now begins to speak, and the crowd marvels. And the crowd accuses Jesus of using Beelzebul, the prince of demons, to cast out the lesser demons. Now, this makes sense if you think about it maybe this way. Hitler is in charge of the Gestapo, so it makes sense that Hitler can order the Gestapo to stop torturing a victim, right? You got uh, shades of the, the demonic in both Hitler and the Gestapo. One demon is more powerful than the other. Uh, so the more powerful demon can, can, has a, a natural authority over the less powerful demons. That's the thinking of the crowd here, right? But it's hypocritical. It's inconsistent. And that's what Jesus nails them uh, for. Jesus retorts that this is not a chain of command question, but a question of propaganda. Who do you believe Jesus is, the Christ or the devil? And this is woven throughout the whole New Testament and particularly the Gospels. The, all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke and John were written to answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? And as, as the reader, you're supposed to be able to answer that question by the end. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the challenge of all the Gospel writers to you as a reader, that you would know Jesus to be the Christ by the end of, of, of reading the Gospel. So later on, we read in chapter 11, from which this reading is taken from, uh, verses 37 to 54, Jesus is invited to and accepts an invitation to dine with the Pharisees and the lawyers. Now, this has to be one of uh, an example of one of the worst dinner parties in history, certainly of a dinner party gone wrong, because as soon as Jesus arrives, he goes in and he sits right down at the table and Picking up here, it says, the Pharisee, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of extortion and wickedness, right? So Jesus is blunt with the crowds and he's blunt with his, his dinner host. You guys are inconsistent. Now, last week I spoke at length on the framing in Matthew's gospel of the story of Jesus healing of the Canaanite woman. You can go back and listen or read that, read that, listen to or read that. And I think Luke is using or applying the same frame here, which is to, to frame these encounters, this healing of the dumb man, and now this encounter with the crowd that's hostile to him, to frame these encounters as a, as a condemnation of the Pharisees, of at least one branch of Judaism. Now, Jesus, remember, was a Jew. Um, and as I said last week, we're witnessing a fight, a battle for the heart of Judaism, a struggle between different Judaisms as to which one will prevail. 
So I think that frame is the same frame is going on here in this story, and Luke is employing the same frame. Luke only refers to people. It's true, he doesn't refer to Pharisees in this episode, but later on in the chapter, he does introduce the Pharisees. So I think the same, I think what he's signaling there is he wants us to know that the same frame applies. Jesus says to uh, his followers later on in, in Luke chapter 12, the very next chapter, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So this is the, this is the frame. Hypocrisy. The Pharisees are hypocritical and, they're, and they sprinkle like leaven, like yeast. Their hypocrisy and their uh, throughout all with all the come in contact with, right, the, the whole religious cultural framework of Judea at this time is sprinkled through, shot through with the leaven of the Pharisees with this hypocrisy where Put, put it another way, inconsistency. So when this Pharisee leaven crowd challenges Jesus with a chain of command question, accusing him of being in league with the devil, he responds that they themselves cast out demons, and by the way, whose name are they doing that in, right? I mean, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are not casting out the devil in the name of Satan, right? They don't use the name of Beelzebul. So he says here, Jesus, if you're using God's name, and he refers to that in his own ministry as the finger of God, then they should recognize that the same God is at work in Jesus, right? But since they don't recognize God at work in Jesus, it's they who must be of the devil. So he turns it right back around on them. Why do they not recognize this? Well, I think they do. They do recognize that the finger of God is at work in Jesus. And they certainly know that they don't invoke the name of Beelzebub to cast out demons, and yet they were unwilling to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that the finger of God is at work in, in Jesus, and that, in fact, the kingdom of God has come. Why? Well, Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 2, 29. He says, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because, and he's speaking here, in this case, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus answers them, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, the kingdom of God has come, and Israel, at least its <clears throat> at least its religious leaders, are busy opposing it. They're on the wrong side. So Jesus says, "He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters." And the whole point here is that there's no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God, and those who don't recognize the kingdom of God and don't see the finger of God at work in Jesus' ministry. It's not because they're neutral. It's because they are ignorant of the scriptures and of the power of God. And, you know, that may be one thing if you're Joe Fisherman and you don't have time to study the scriptures. It's a little bit disgraceful because you're a Jew and the scriptures are the special provenance of the Jews. Paul says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So not knowing the scriptures is a bit like not knowing you're Jewish. And in this case... Paul, uh, Jesus is saying, you Sadducees and Pharisees who, who are teachers of the law, who know the scriptures, you say you do, and yet you don't recognize me. It must mean you're ignorant. It must mean you're willfully ignorant, willfully blind, and that you have chosen sides. It is not a neutrality. It's not a suspension of disbelief. It's not an unbiased or indifferent place you're coming from. It's from a place of hostility. So the point here is that there is no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God. You and I are either actively a part of it, working to expand it and its reach throughout the world, or 
you are actively opposing it. And if you're opposing it, even by silence, then you're complicit and your neutrality is a vote for hell. Now, Jesus is very clear what kingdom-expanding work looks like and what it is. He says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, and this is what's called as the Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So let's, let's go. Let's walk through that. Go. First word, do not stay put. Now, you don't have to go very far, but it does mean you can't be idle and do nothing. Make disciples. This means to teach, but it also means formation for life in right living. Living in and working for the growth of God's kingdom is a way of life, right? Make disciples. We have to do this, right? We can't ignore this. I mean, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we cannot ignore this commandment, make disciples. Of whom? Of all nations, right? No exceptions. That's a popular slogan these days in some churches. No exceptions. Okay, let's see you go make disciples of all, of all nations. No exceptions. One's inherited culture, religion, and way of life are no excuse for not becoming a Christian. I'll say that again. I mean, a lot of people want to hide behind their, their identity right here, right? Their intersectionality or whatever, and use that as an excuse for not reading the Word of God or not understanding it or not allowing it to have power. That's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for not becoming a Christian. It's not an excuse for shirking the Great Commission. The church must leave no corner of the earth untouched and unclaimed for Jesus. And it's not just talking about geography and geographical space. It's talking about mental space as well. All these people living on the face of the earth have enormous mental real estate that the church has got to find a way to capture and to teach and to form and to bring into obedience to the mind of Christ. The next part of that commission, to observe all that I have commanded you, or as the New International Version of the Bible puts it, obey, to obey all that I have commanded you, right? That's pretty clear. It's pretty clear what the Great Commission is. And so I ask you, do you detect a note of neutrality in the Great Commission? Because I sure don't. There's no neutrality here. Does it sound to you as if Jesus would be okay with polite or not-so-polite refusals to his commands? It doesn't to me. No king extends his kingdom by allowing indifference to his rule. Jesus has left us with commandments that we must teach others to obey, not to go around giving unsought advice, only to have it rejected, right? We're, we're, we're teaching people. We're teaching people to obey. We're not giving unsolicited advice that we're indifferent to one way or the, or the other, whether they take it or not. They see, the first puts us in a position of authority, authority that comes directly from Jesus. We have authority to teach the nations. We have that authority, and we have the authority to ask them to obey the Lord's commandments. We have no right to meddle and give advice that no one wants. There is no neutral position here. Discipleship is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. We're either a disciple of the Lord Jesus or, or, or you're not yet, right? And the way you know you're a disciple is, are you executing this fourfold command? Are you going? Are you making disciples? Is the field of your vision of all nations? And finally, what are you doing when you teach them? Are you teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them? If you're doing anything less than this or you're not doing one of these four things, you're not a disciple. So, 
Well, it really is up to the church to wage an all-out assault on the bastions of unbelief. Especially when these bastions masquerade as neutral, and we see, I'll come to some of that more later, but, you know, the public square, supposed to be neutral, right? That's just a bastion of unbelief. We are to, as the members of the church, bring about the obedience to Christ's commands that he requires of the nations. Now, let me raise it right now, because you're going to, you're sitting, you know, if it's in the news, you're hearing it, right? If this raises the specter of Christian nationalism in your mind, or if you get asked if you're a Christian nationalist, or you think I am, or whatever, first you understand. You have to understand that's a gotcha question. That's not a neutral question. That's not a that's not an you know gentle inquiry. The person asking you that is straight from the the Pharisee leavened crowd of today's gospel lesson, right? It's not a friendly question. The person asking it of you is not a friendly. It's not on your side. And secondly, if you're asked this question, you could do worse than to quote scripture, which is what Jesus always did, right? You could quote uh, a whole sermon last two Sundays ago was about how he overcame the temptation in the wilderness by the devil. He quoted scripture each and every time. So you, you could do that too here. You could quote the passage I've just read to you, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You could quote that to your accuser or to yourself if you need some convincing. You could ask your accuser to tell you what it means. Right? What, what does this great commission mean? What does go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey the commandments of Jesus? What does that mean? To you, to you, ask your accuser that. Or if you need to ask you, if you need to ask yourself what you think it means, right? And if you find yourself in the camp of the Christian nationalists because you're obedient to the words of your Lord, well, oh, so be it. Christ is a king. Your accuser will know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not neutral, and that's why he's not asking you neutral questions, even if you, as his follower, aren't quite, quite there yet. So let me try to help you get there. All right, so I'm going to assume that you are still hanging on to this idea of neutrality, or even if you're not and you're with me and you know there's no neutral ground for you as a Christian to occupy, you still may not know why or be all that clear on the reasons. So neutrality is impossible for three reasons. And the first, we, the first reason, as we've seen, is that there is no neutrality in Scripture. Again, Luke chapter 11, verse 23 Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters, right? So you can, I'm, I'm pleading with you now to be a consistent Christian. You cannot be neutral and, and say that you believe that word from Jesus. You are either with him or against him. That means the whole world is either with him or against him. There, you, will, you will never meet a person in your life, who has not made already made up his mind about who Jesus is? Oh, oh, he hasn't heard of Jesus. You say, okay, but he's already made up his mind about who Jesus is because he's not with him. Therefore, he is against him. That's why one of the reasons why it's so urgent to evangelize, right? Because you've got a lot of people out there who don't know who Jesus is, and they are against him, and you do not want to be against him on Judgment Day. But there's also this from Deuteronomy chapter thirteen, verses one through four. Moses wrote here, if a prophet arises among you or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or or to that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So this whole thing about neutrality is a test. God is testing you. He's testing me. And by what means? What, what, by what means does God test us? Well, by the means of his word. 
And by, and by what reference or standard uh, does God test us? And he tests us by the standard of himself, by the standard of his own truth, by the standard of his own word. God's word is the baseline reference point and standard for all truth. There can be no understanding of what is true and what is not true without reference to the truth himself. Notice I say himself, not itself. The truth is a person. Or as Jesus puts it in his prayer to the Father for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 17, he says to his Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. In other words, Jesus is asking his Father to make his make his followers, his disciples, holy according to the true standard of holiness that God has set. Now, where do we read what that standard of holiness is? We read it in the Bible, in the scriptures, in all of the scriptures, in Leviticus chapter 18, in Romans 1, and throughout. We read what the standard of holiness is. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, read what the standard of holiness is. Read what the standard of holiness is for the church. It is set forth in God's word. In short, there is no neutrality in revealed in God's word. Or I should say there is no neutrality in God's revealed word. Certainly there is no neutrality revealed, but there is no neutrality in God's revealed word. Okay, but surely you say you're going to quote Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 to me where, it's, where Isaiah says, God, God himself says, and, uh, come now, let us reason together, right? Uh, so that would be an appeal, what, to the neutral laws or rules of reason and logic, sure. Isn't that what that's an appeal to? Come now, let us reason together. Well, let's apply the, the let's look let's look at logical rules. Let's look at logical fallacies. And you know, the most famous one here is a conjoined proposition. If one part of a conjoined proposition is false, then the entire statement is false, right? We all learned that. David was the king and David was the Christ. That's a false proposition. Why? Because the first statement is true, but the second is false. And so and just because the first statement is true does not make the proposition neutral or indifferent. It makes the proposition false. And so according to the rules of logic, a proposition is either one thing or the other, true or false. It's either valid reasoning or invalid reasoning. Propositions either flow from the premise or they do not. They may be clear, they may be unclear, they may be partially true, they may be wholly true, they may be completely false, but they are never neutral. There is either valid reasoning or invalid reasoning. There can be no neutral reasoning, which is why Isaiah continues in verses 18, chapter 1, verses 18, through through 20, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, right? One or the other, scarlet or snow. I'm not, God isn't moving us from a place of, 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 of reprobation to a place of neutrality. He's moving us from a place of reprobation and damnation to redemption and salvation, right? Though your sins are, as, uh, are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the food of the, the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you should be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, right? In other words, all reason for it to be reasonable proceeds from the premise that the mouth of the Lord has spoken, right? No neutrality in that mouth. No neutrality in that word. Scarlet or snow, crimson or wool, obedience or rebellion, these are the choices. So, okay, fine. You're still struggling, though. You don't want to let go of the idea that there's some corner of the universe to which you can flee, some principality 
you know, moral or mental principality like Switzerland. If you could just get there, you'll take your stand against this small-minded preacher and prove that you're a good and decent person because you can be neutral, right? Yeah, so you flee. You flee to what? You flee to science. <laughs> yes, you flee to that science. So let's, let's have a look. Let's have a look at the science. So you're excited because you know that neutral is a chemical term. You know that if you put water, take pure water at room temperature and it has a pH of seven. Remember this? Remember this from like, what, sixth grade? Little strips of paper that you would dip in a solution and would turn different colors. I liked that unit. I remember liking that. It was also a commercial for a lady's deodorant, I think, that made a big deal about pH. Anyway, so continuing with the science, pure water at room temperature has a pH of seven and is neither an acid nor a base. It is, it is, it is neutral. In fact, you are so happy because pH seven is the very definition of neutral. It is the reference point. Uh, you've found your Switzerland, haven't you? However, because pure water at room temperature is the reference point, it is also the one thing you must affirm. You need to affirm that reference point. Orange juice with its pH of 3 would not be an acid without reference to water's pH of 7. And ammonia with its pH of 11 would not be a base without reference to water's pH of 7. So if you're neutral about pure water at room temperature having a pH of 7, then you have destroyed all your science. Now, who does the Christian understand to be the baseline, the reference point for all things? Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, read that in chapter, in John chapter 1, verse 1, and John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus, the incarnate word of God, the word of God made flesh, he is the baseline, the reference point, not just for believing Christians, but for the whole creation, whether the unbelieving part of that creation acknowledge him, acknowledges him or not. This is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus unites himself in one person, both the uncreated nature of God and the created nature of man, which he took from his mother Mary, the created nature, that is, his human nature. This proposition allows for no neutrality. It is either true or it is not true, just as the chemist presupposes that a solution with a pH of 7 is neither acid nor base. The chemist can do this because he presupposes that there are constants in nature. But even the definition of the standard hydrogen electrode upon which he bases his pH scale, yes, I, I looked all this up, comes down to an international scientific consensus and is nothing more than a recommendation. That's funny if you think about it. A so-called constant of nature boils down to an international committee's recommendation. This is what we base our science on, ultimately. A consensus, a, cons a consensus of experts, to, uh, to be sure, uh, but a consensus. And we base it on recommendations of, from those experts, and as good as science is and chemistry is, useful for creating all kinds of solutions for our modern-day life and to solve the problems that we face in this world and the challenges that we face, I think I can give you a little bit better. I can do one better than a recommendation for you when I preach to you from the Word of God, which is truth. So even if it's just a recommendation upon which the chemist bases all of, its, all of his work, it's a necessary recommendation, and in no way can he afford to be neutral about it. Chemistry would be impossible the moment he tried to be neutral about it. And, and likewise for the Christian, the moment he allows for any possible neutrality, the, the moment he, he allows for some civic space like the public school where he can be neutral, or some aspect of his character like his sexuality where he can be neutral, or some corner of his mind, maybe what he likes to call his free will, where he can be neutral, he destroys his faith. You think maybe I went too far there, but ask yourself, is there some principle? 
Is there some standard? Is there some behavior, some form of government that you are allowed to have or to hold that is somehow exempt from your obligation to refer all things to Jesus Christ for judgment as his standard? Or I should say by his standard? Is there anything you can hold back from Jesus that is not under his judgment, that is not subject to his standard? Do you not know what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5? Paul writes, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's no neutrality here. Now, you sometimes hear a line of argument that frankly is unchristian, but I hear a lot of Christians use it. And it goes like this. Jesus never said anything about abortion. And it's true, you look up the word abortion, you're not going to find it, right? You're not even going to find it's Greek, uh, pharmakia. I don't believe Jesus ever used that word, right? It shows up elsewhere, but not, not from Jesus. Pharmakia, abortion. You've got the English word pharmacy, right? You see where that's going. Jesus never said anything about abortion or homosexuality or feminism or gambling or transgenderism or prayer in school, right? Okay, yes. And why is that an unchristian line of argument? Because it assumes some kind of neutrality, right? It's an argument from silence, Christians make this, these feeble arguments because they are hoping that the Bible will allow them some neutral zone. But Jesus, does, but Jesus need not have mentioned these things by name to speak of and to everything. Why? Because John says in chapter 1, verse 3 of his gospel, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all things here means all things, and all things bear the mark of their creator, and all things declare how they stand before him. Acts chapter 15, verse 18 says, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So if we're God's own work, then surely we are not neutral. We cannot be neutral. We were not created to be neutral. We were not designed to be neutral. We are either for him or against him. Today's gospel lesson ends with an odd coda, at least odd to modern ears. Because this is not how we praise speakers we like nowadays. It goes, as he said this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that you sucked. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So if Jesus' response sounds familiar, that may be because it reminds you of what we heard the first Sunday of Lent. When tempted by Satan, Jesus countered each temptation with the word of God. In fact, it was the first temptation, it was to the first temptation that he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Both times, Jesus is making a plea for consistency. He's putting... Satan and everyone else on notice that there is no neutral ground. Do the word of God. If you're not doing the word of God, then you're against God, right? Then you're not doing the word of God. There's no neutral place. There's no setting on the motor in, in, in this case where you can just sit there in neutral and idle. You're either in gear, a forward gear, or a reverse gear. Every inch of creation is claimed for God and contested by Satan. Moreover, Jesus asserts in today's gospel that he is the stronger of the two and that he will win. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What this means is that if there is some part of your private private or public life that is held by Satan, sooner or later Christ will recapture it and divide the spoils. To whom will he divide these spoils? Well, he'll divide them to his, among and to his believing church. This means that Jesus will give this world that he has recaptured to 
God's children. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9 says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, specifically, that was the Father speaking to the Anointed One, the Messiah, the one who was to come. And the heathen nations in this psalm are promised to Jesus Christ, to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, as Jesus' inheritance. So you may think, okay, well, that doesn't have anything to do with, with, with me. That's got everything to do with Jesus, though. But no, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 17, that you and I are heirs through Christ of that same inheritance. Paul writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, right? There's another uh, dichotomy there, another binary there, right? There, we're either slaves or we're sons. We're not neutral. There's no in-between. We're either slaves or we're sons. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs, here it is, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How? By resurrection and by the inheritance, the promised inheritance of this world. Part of that suffering means letting go of the sense of safety that you may be clinging to and still thinking that there is some neutral place for you to go and be a Christian and not have to face the consequences of your Christianity. Now, for Americans, maybe this is uh, that sacred sense of neutrality has to do with the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause. And frankly, also that for so long, we didn't have to think about it much, right? We could assume, we could take for granted that uh, for all of our history up until the 1960s, that we were swimming in a Christian pond, right? It was understood that this was a Christian nation. The laws were Christian. The values were Christian. The morals were Christian. The television programming was at least felt like it had to uh, uh, answer to Christian standards. And, uh, you know, and this did not mean that we had an established church at the federal level, although many states had established churches when we were started, when we were founded well into the 19th century. But it did mean that Christianity was privileged in law and in custom. It was the Christian Sabbath, not uh, Christian Sabbath Sunday that was the subject of blue laws. But nowadays we're seeing Satan privileged in the classroom and in the state house, all in the name of a neutrality that Jesus has told us does not exist. Recently, the, the Satanic Temple's director of ministry wrote in an email about their plan to send Satanic Temple chaplains into Florida public schools. Our ministers, she wrote, she quote, this is a quote, our ministers look forward to participating in opportunities to do, our ministers look forward to participating in opportunities to do good in the community, including the opportunities created by this bill right alongside the clergy of other religions. You know, this, this satanic group understands that there is no neutrality, but they are using the naivete of Christians who think there is neutrality. And gee, if we could only just get back to it like we had in the 90s. This group, the satanic temple, is using that sense of neutrality, this Christian idea of neutrality against, against us. Now, I came of age. I was in college in the early 90s. It wasn't neutral then either. Now, the Satanic Temple is not a serious group, and by their own admission, they do not even believe in Satan. They mock religion, specifically the Christian faith, and their purpose is to mock you and to drive Christ, whom you say is your Lord, from the public square. But they are your enemy. By whose authority do they cast out God from the public square? You know, if you look at any public square today, chances are you're going to see one or more Christian churches still situated on it, right? And these people have the gall to try to cast God out from the public square? By whose authority? By the authority of Beelzebub? Beelzebub, no. They, they, remember, they, they don't believe in him. By the authority of a godless neutrality supposedly found in the First Amendment. And that amendment was written by Christians for Christians to protect the church from the state, and it's now being turned around 
to destroy you. Don't be fooled. The states that ratified the First Amendment also had blasphemy laws on the blasphemy laws on the books. They would have they would have run these Satanists out on a rail, if not worse. It is a myth that our founding was secular, and it certainly was not neutral. Our country is not neutral, and unless Christians wake up and start to organize politically, we will find ourselves opposing God, working against Jesus, and undermining the kingdom. Satan is not divided against himself. He is organized, and he knows what time it is. Many Christians, however, are like the formerly possessed man we read about today, who, if they are not watchful, will find themselves possessed again, and this time by a legion of devils. Then it will be truly said of Christians in America that the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. The baptism, the baptism rite from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer puts the charge to those who are being baptized this way. To the whole congregation, the presbyter, the minister will say, we receive this child into the congregation of Christ's flock and do sign him with the sign of the cross in token that hereafter he shall not be ashamed to confess the, Christ, the faith of Christ crucified and manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil and continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto his life's end. Amen. So you see, you join the church. It seems you go looking for a fight. That's not what I say. That's what the Book of Common Prayer says. Now, there's an election coming up. But Christian political action is not about voting harder. In fact, on balance, Christians have been voting the right way. There's a bill proposed right now in Alabama that would strictly limit, limit gender to biological sex. Now, this is nothing more than the equivalent of an attempt to save the pH standard to let water be water in order to save chemistry, right? But in this case, this is an attempt, a political attempt to save men as men and women as women. Also in Alabama, the Supreme Court there, recognizing that God is the author of life, recently extended protection to unborn children who are what science, again, yeah, science, remember science? Science tells us that these unborn children are the byproduct of in vitro fertilization. And so what do they do? What does science do? It otherwise abandons these children to a frozen limbo. Now, Deuteronomy tells us we are, the, the, the parents of the covenant are not to pass their children as a sacrifice through the fires of Molech. Well, here we are consigning them to a frozen hellscape usually before they are destroyed. Is there any neutrality here? Don't tell me you think there can be any neutrality here. Even in California, as recently as 2008, residents voted to uphold the biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman. But Satan is not divided against Satan, and so the people's will was undone. And if you're wondering why, if you wonder why Satan has this power, then you need to understand what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the, principali against the principalities, against powers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, this is not just a call to prayer, though it is certainly that. This is a call to understand, as Jesus puts it in today's gospel, that it is by the finger of God that he casts out demons. Therefore, the kingdom of God has come upon us. It has come upon you, and it has come upon me. And God's kingdom has laws. His kingdom is a political force. And through his church, this kingdom must make its full weight felt on the body politic in order to strike fear into God's enemies. God's kingdom must not be neutralized or spiritualized into irrelevance by the passive pietism of its Christian citizens. The Irish once understood this. 
and they wrote the norms of Roman Catholic Christian social teaching into their constitution. But today they're about to strip mothers of their rights. Go ahead and go look it up. God says in Exodus chapter 23, verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. We need to normalize this confusion of God's enemies through political, Christian political action. We need to get good at it again. Christians and churches, I should say, Christians in churches, individual congregations need to learn how to do this once more. Christ left us with commandments for the here and now. We are to teach the nations to obey them here and now. Not only is it for their own good, because everyone benefits from good laws, and the laws of God are good and salutary, right? He says, you shall not have the diseases of Egypt if you live by my law. It is now also urgently necessary for us to teach these commandments for the here and now it is urgently necessary for us to teach the nations the commandments of God for the safety and protection of the church, not only for the benefit of these nations, but for the safety and protection of the church. We must, once again, make our alleluias heard in the halls of power, in the courts, in the legislative chambers, and on the streets. But it will take more than singing. We are not allowed to be neutral or indifferent about God's claim on his creation or his rule of creation. We are to enter into the political fray, acknowledge Christ as the head of state, as we do on our currency and God we trust, and we must establish his commandments in law. Amen. Well, now we can turn for the questions turn to the questions for reflection and discussion. Question number one. As Christians, we are beset on all sides by appeals to what? To neutrality. Question number two. Jesus said, he who is not with me is what? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Question number three. Jesus is accused of using who? The prince of demons to cast out the lesser demons. He's accused of using Beelzebub. Number four. Luke intends for his reader to see blank to see what of the Pharisees at work in the hostile crowd confronting Jesus. He intends for his readers to see the leaven of the Pharisees at work in the hostile crowd confronting Jesus. The leaven of the Pharisees refers refers to what? It refers to hypocrisy and inconsistency. That was number five. Question number six, the failure to recognize Jesus as the Son of God and Christ so the failure to recognize Jesus as the Son of, of God and the Christ is because of a person's failure to read and know the Bible and God, right? So if, if you don't know who Jesus is, it's because you're not reading God's word to you. Read God's word. Read the Bible. Question number seven. Explain why the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, is not a neutral statement. It's not a neutral statement because discipleship is it's not a, a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Question number eight. Like the pH scale for chemistry, God's word is the baseline reference point and standard for all what? It's the standard for all truth. God's word is the baseline reference point and standard for all truth. If you if you want to know how true or false something is, you need to uh, examine it by the standard of God's word. Number nine. Explain why the Bible is the one thing you must affirm if you want to know the truth. And the answer to that is, is if God's word is truth, which it says it is, John chapter 17, verse 17, if God's word is truth, then to deny it or remain ignorant of it is to destroy the very possibility of truth. Just like if you get rid of that pH 7, you're going to have no way of knowing whether something is an acid or a base. Question number 10, a so-called 
constant of nature in chemistry boils down to an international committee's what? It boils down to an international committee's recommendation. I'm sure it's a very good recommendation, but what would you rather have? Recommendation or, or God's truth? I'm not saying you can't have this committee's recommendation. I'm not saying you can't do chemistry. But you can only do it by reference to God's truth. Question number 11. Explain why this is an unchristian argument. Jesus never said anything about abortion, homosexuality, feminism, gambling, transgenderism, or prayer in school. Why is that? Why is that an unchristian argument? Because as creator and Lord of all, Jesus need not have mentioned a thing by name to speak of it and to everything. Jesus speaks, doesn't need to have mentioned a thing by name to speak to it. Speak of and to everything. Sorry about that. Question number 12, last question. You join the church, it seems like you go looking for a what? And, and that's what the prayer book says. You join the church, it seems like you go looking for a fight, right? Christ's soldier, manfully fight under his banner, right? This is what the baptismal service says. Parents and grandparents, you are responsible to apply God's word to your children's lives. Here's some help. Young children, draw a picture about something you hear during the sermon. Explain your picture to your parents or after church. Now, older children, do one or more, one or both of the following. Number one, count how many times the word neutral is mentioned a lot. Number two, discover, discuss with your parents about a time when you or they had to choose a side. And I'll be curious what you come up with here. Discuss with your parents about a time when you or they had to choose a side. What were the consequences and how did things turn out? Well, that's my sermon for the third Sunday of Lent. God bless you all.